0: If you have your copy of Scripture, we are back in the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, uh, we're going to look at verses 14 through 16 from the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 this morning. Titled this message, Jesus, Our Great High Priest. Hebrews 4 14 through 16. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. As we've already seen in the book of Hebrews, we know that it's packed with theology. But the author of Hebrews does not write simply to uh, the church as a theologian. He also writes as a pastor. In fact, in chapter 13, he will describe his letter as his word of exhortation. We know that the author has, has focused on Christ's superiority to all things. In Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2, he is superior to angels In chapter 3, he is superior to Moses. In chapter 4, he is superior to Joshua. And now we come to the end of chapter 4, where we will see, see that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament, Levitical, and sacrificial system. Specifically, superior to Aaron, the first high priest. Martin Luther said about these verses, after Terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. First, we are terrified of the prospect of falling away from our faith, and then we are comforted and motivated to persevere in our faith. There are two things that nearly every Christian seems to struggle with in their Christian life, and they are perseverance under trial and prayer both are connected to each other if we're going to persevere in our faith then prayer is essential we have seen in hebrews 3 that the enduring persevering faith is a mark of a genuine saving faith prayer is our line to god in the heat of battle prayer is so vital that the enemy tries to keep us from praying if you've been a believer for any length of time You have had those thoughts that come to you from the enemy that says, God doesn't care about you. Or, why waste your time praying? It doesn't matter. Or, don't you have more important things to do? I don't have time to pray today. I have too much to do. One of the easiest things to happen to us as believers is to be discouraged in our prayer life and stop praying altogether, which in turn keeps us from calling on the only one that can truly help us. True prayer is an approach of our soul by the Spirit of God to the throne of God. It is not some mental exercise that we practice, but it is spiritual communion with the Creator. This text that we have this morning is very encouraging to us when we think of a persevering faith and when we think of our prayer life remember hebrews was written to those jewish christians who were having thoughts of abandoning their faith in the face of persecution and he uses the illustration of the of the israelites not entering god's rest in prior chapters to drive home his point that we can't uh, just succumb to unbelief and disobedience. And for this reason, we must be diligent about entering God's rest. And if we respond to God in faith and obedience, His Word will reveal our sin and show us His ways. And now the author shows us how it is that we draw near to Jesus. And he is described here, As the great high priest who sympathizes with us. He gives us access to the throne of God. And that throne is a place of mercy and grace. Now there are two specific commands in these verses. They are to hold fast to our confession in verse 14. And draw near with confidence. In verse 16, these commands are not based on anything in us, but they are based entirely on who Jesus is. And since Jesus is our great high priest, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, we must therefore hold fast to our confession. Furthermore, since Jesus is our high priest, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, we should draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help so let's look at those things specifically. First, since Jesus is our great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Since Jesus is our great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. The author of Hebrews is giving to his readers a description of who Jesus is. He starts off by saying, since then we have a great high priest but not only does he say that Jesus is a great high priest but he also says that Jesus passed through the heavens and that Jesus is the son of God and so there's a lot packed into this one verse he gives us a description of who Jesus is and then he tells us how to respond since Jesus is the great high priest since he has passed through the heavens since he is the son of God what are we supposed to do Well, we're supposed to hold fast our confession. So let's look at that. First, let's see that Jesus is a living high priest. Jesus is a living high priest. Before I get into explaining some about the high priest, I want us to first recognize the language that's being used here. It says, since we have. That word have in the Greek is a present active participle. Now, you're probably like, big whoop de do I don't even know what that means and so so um that's the way that we think sometimes so it is uh this is what it is we we currently have a high priest that's what it means that we currently have a high priest and it is the idea of of to have a relationship with it's a, a verb to have a personal or familial relationship with someone. Jesus was not like any other high priest, because every other high priest that came before Jesus lived and died. But Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Rose from the dead, never to die again. And this is why there is now no such thing as the Old Testament system of a priesthood. Because Jesus is the final priest between God and man. Jesus will never die and His priesthood is indestructible according to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17, which we'll get to later. And so Jesus is a living high priest. He is alive today. He is a living high priest. But not only is Jesus a living high priest, but Jesus, according to these verses, is at the right hand of God. It's hard for us to understand the concept of a high priest. We don't understand that today because it's not something that we see practiced today, nor have we seen it practiced. But to the Jews, the high priest was an important office. The brother of Moses, Aaron, was the first high priest He acted as a mediator between the people and God. The high priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And so the high priest would offer sacrifices uh, for the sins of the people, but also for his own sins as well. If the high priest messed up in following the procedure that was laid out by God for sacrifice, it meant for the high priest instant death. In fact... We have a record of this happening with Aaron's sons when they offered what was called strange fire on the altar. Guess what? They died. They met death. One time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies on this day. He did so to make atonement for all the sins of the nation. If he entered the Holy of Holies improperly or at any other time, he would die. He entered through three portals. He would put the blood on the door of the outer court. And then he entered another door in the holy place. And finally, he entered through the veil of the Holy of Holies. The priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat in the presence of God. And when the priest would come out of the Holy of Holies alive, it meant that God had accepted the sacrifice for the sins of the people. Year after year, After year, after year, the high priest would do this. But Jesus is not just another high priest. Jesus is not some ordinary high priest in the line of Aaron. But he's our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which we'll get to again in a later sermon. He does not enter through the holy of holies in the temple, but he passed through the heaven, which is a picture of Jesus passing once and for all out of the sight of his people into another realm, into the very presence of God. The point the author of Hebrews is making is clear, and that is this, that the holiest place that they knew, which was the holy of holies in the tabernacle, was merely a shadow of the true holy place in heaven where God dwells. And where the high priest is living today, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, according to Psalm 110-11. No earthly priest could sit in the Holy of Holies. They stood. Jesus sits at the right hand of God's throne because he made atonement for our sins once and for all. He has immediate access to God. And according to Hebrews chapter 7, He always lives to make intercession for us. The point, Jesus is superior to any high priest. He is the great high priest who is seated at the right hand of God, always making intercession for us. Not only that, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is indeed... um, His human name. This calls attention to the fact that Jesus was truly human. If he was not truly human, he could not have atoned for our sin. But he is also the Son of God, which is a reference to his deity. If he was not truly God... He could never bear the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus was not just a human exalted to being high priest, but He was the divine Son of God who created the heavens and the earth, and that is why His sacrifice is of infinite worth. Jesus does not go into the temple with the blood of animals and sprinkle them on the mercy seat. He does not go to the throne with the blood of humanity, but instead He takes His own precious blood the blood of the son of god and when god the father sees the sacrifice of god the son he says the debt is paid my wrath is satisfied my righteousness is vindicated my glory is exalted and he overlooks my sinfulness and counts me as a child innocent before the throne of god and so because jesus is our great high priest who is living, who is seated at the right hand of God, and he is the Son of God. Therefore, because of those things, let us hold fast our confession. Because this is who Jesus is, seated at the right hand of God, our great high priest, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, to hold fast uh, our confession, That requires effort, right? It requires some sort of determination on our part. In other words, it doesn't just happen. There also seems to be an element of danger, even as it says, hold fast to our confession. It's to remain firmly committed to Our confession of faith is not time for cowardice. We hold fast our confession of faith because it's a treasure for us that money can't buy. It is not dismissed, nor is it abandoned. Our confession makes life worth living. People have died for it. It It's not... It's not just a simple, this is not a simple appeal from the author of Hebrews to persevere or endure as we've seen in prior chapters. But it is an exhortation to be fearless with our witness, to to step outside, to hold fast to your confession, to make sure that people know what you believe in. Far too often Christians are robbed of their faith. They allow others to steal it away or the culture to hide it but the call is that we would advertise our confession of faith, that we would hold it out for others to see that Jesus suffered at the hand of those who rejected Him, and that we would go out into a world that rejects Christ, into a world that ignores Christ, into an apathetic, atheistic world, and that we would bear the abuse for Him because you and I, as followers of Christ, hold fast to our confession. Of faith. I know no other way. To say it than to say. It like this. If you're looking for a lazy man's way. Through life. Then Christianity. Is not right for you. When we follow Christ. We seek a treasure that's not of this world. When we follow Christ, we set our hearts on heaven and we step out into a spiritual battleground. And we wage war. It is a battle of sacrifice and it's a battle of self-denial for the sake of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the reward is often not found on this earth. And will not be seen until we get to heaven. Furthermore, to hold fast our confession is not just our private belief in the doctrines of our faith, but it is a public declaration of the truth that we believe in the face of persecution. It goes beyond baptism. Like we say that baptism is our public declaration. It goes beyond baptism. It says, this is what I believe in the face of persecution. Are we just fair-weather Christians who will deny the Lord? Does it really cost us something to believe? Or will we hold fast to our confession? I know we don't use creeds and confessions anymore. We don't use those a whole lot. I made some copies of, of one. They're down on the, uh, welcome center if you want to grab one of those, uh, to use. I know we don't use those a whole lot, but the early church used them all the time. And I, I believe we should get back to it, that we should, we should say this is, this is our confession. This is our creed because it matters what the church believes. J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness says this. A religion without doctrine or dogma is a thing which many are fond of, talking of in the present day. It sounds very fine at first. It looks very pretty at a distance. But the moment we sit down to examine and consider it, we shall find it a simple impossibility. We might as well talk of the body without bones and sinews. No man will ever be anything or do anything in religion unless he believes Something. No one ever fights earnestly against the world, against the flesh, and the devil, unless he has engraven on his heart certain great principles which he believes. If we don't hold fast to our confession, when we face small trials, how do we think we're going to hold fast in the face of persecution? So hold fast to your confession of faith. Hold fast since Jesus is our great high priest who is alive and is seated at the right hand of God and is the Son of God. Hold fast to your confession of faith. Number two. You'll notice I only have two points in this sermon, but they have a lot of sub-points. Point number two. Since Jesus is our sympathetic sinless high priest, we must be a people of prayer. Since Jesus is our sympathetic sinless high priest, we must be a people of prayer. Look closely at verse 15. We've just seen that our high priest lives forever, that He is at the right hand of God and that he is the Son of God. And now the author seeks to expand our knowledge and his reader's knowledge of who Christ is because we see that he is sympathetic, that he is sinless, and that he was tempted just like we are. Therefore, we must be a people of prayer. So let's break this down real quick. Jesus first is our sympathetic high priest. The first thing we want to look at is that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. Verse 15 states that we do not have a high priest who is an, unable to sympathize with our weakness. It's interesting how the author writes this. He uses what is called uh, a double negative. I don't know if you caught it or not. But uh, the author is probably anticipating the um, the objections that will come. Because he says this, we do not, and who is Unable. So do not and unable. If Jesus is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, how can he possibly know what I'm going through? How can he possibly relate to me? Those are the same objections we hear today, right? And the author says that Jesus understands. He says that he's not unsympathetic to your situation. He understands even your deepest thoughts and your deepest feelings. This Jesus, who is the sinless Son of God, who is our High Priest, who parted the heavens and went into the Holy of Holies, can sympathize with you. Now, that's hard for us to get our head around. In fact, maybe, maybe make it personal. Right where you are. Maybe this morning you can just say to yourself, even in your pew, Jesus sympathizes with me. Jesus understands what I'm going through. So often we have this complex that somehow Jesus doesn't sympathize with us and that nobody in Jesus can't understand what I'm going through. But he does. We ask ourselves, how can that be? That our high priest is sympathetic to us. He's able to be sympathetic because Jesus was not only fully God, but He was fully man. He had a real human body. Real human emotions with a real human mind. He walked like a baby before He walked like a man. He lived in a human body with all of its limitations. Jesus experienced pains and dying. He experienced what it means to be human. He was sympathetic. He knows what we go through. He suffered all that we experience and he is sympathetic to our weakness. Think of all of the times that he demonstrated compassion while doing his earthly ministry. He was sympathetic and his humanity is not diminished in any way when he entered into heaven. He's not suddenly no longer human. He still has humanity. We have a sympathetic high priest who lives, who still is human, who sits at the right hand Of God the Father. But not only that. Not only is Jesus sympathetic. But it says that Jesus is our sinless high priest. Sinless. So he can sympathize with our weakness. As verse 15 says. But he's also one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, we might be inclined to wrongly think of this verse as indicating that Jesus being sinless somehow makes him distant and unsympathetic. Because guess what? We all have sinned, right? I mean, we're all a bunch of sinners, (laughs) Some of us probably sinned on our way here this morning. Maybe you got mad at someone or, you know, lost your temper. I don't know. Don't tell me if you've gotten a fight with your wife on the way here. But um, I do offer marriage counseling if you did. Uh, C.S. Lewis imagines someone objecting uh, to this and saying, uh, well, if Jesus never sinned then he does not know what temptation's like. You ever hear somebody kind of use that logic, that faulty logical? If you didn't do it, you can't say anything about it. If you didn't read the book, you can't say it's bad. So some people say, well, if Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't really know what temptation's like. He lived a sheltered life and is out of touch with how strong temptation can be. This is how C.S. Lewis responded. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in Christ because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to full what temptation means the only complete realist The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Do not imagine that if the Lord Jesus had sinned, He would have been any more tender towards you. For sin is always of a hardening nature. If the Christ of God could have sinned, He would have lost the perfection of His sympathetic nature. It needs perfectness of heart to lay self all aside and to be touched with a feeling of the infirmities of others. Let's be clear. The one who resists temptation until the very end knows the full power of temptation. And they know temptation in a greater way than the one who gives in to temptation. And when it says that Jesus was tempted in every, every respect like we are, it does not mean that he experienced every specific temptation that we experience Because that would be impossible. Not only that. But Jesus was never tempted by indwelling sin. Because he didn't have indwelling sin. But you and I do have indwelling sin. Instead Jesus was like Adam and Eve. Before the fall and temptation came to Jesus. From without. Not from within. Yet he still knew temptation in particular. He knew temptation through suffering. He knew what it meant to be cold. And hungry, and thirsty, and hot, and tired. Probably beyond what many of us have ever experienced in our lifetime. He knew what it was like to have no place to lay his head. To have anguish in his soul, and to have emotions. He knew what it was like to to dread the death he was facing. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane when he calls out to God the Father, let this cup pass. Think about it. From the manger to His ministry in Gethsemane to ultimately Gargotha to the cross, His temptations got stronger and stronger and stronger. He was mocked, distrusted, maligned, and betrayed by the closest people to Him. Satan leveled all of the power that he had at Jesus to try to get Him to sin. But he never once succeeded. Which raises a theological question in verse 15. Is it even possible for Jesus to have sinned? First and foremost, let me be clear because recent studies have found that many Christians believe that Jesus sinned. So let's be clear. Jesus never, ever, ever committed sin. Hebrews 7.26, 1 Peter 1.18, 1 Peter 2.22 makes it clear that he did not sin. There was no sin in him. We also know that temptation that Jesus faced was real temptation. We also know that scripture tells us that God can't be tempted with evil. James chapter one, verse 13. So even though Jesus was truly man, he was also truly God. So how could he be tempted to sin, much less commit sin? Now I know some of you don't care about this because you're like, well, that's just a bunch of theology. I don't care about this, but this is a vital truth of our faith. And so we're going to break it down real quick and look at it. Jesus was one person with two natures. In other words, he did not have only a a human nature. And since sin involves the whole person and is an act of the whole person and not of the nature, Jesus could not have sinned or he would have ceased to be God. If Jesus sinned, then God sinned. The fact that Jesus could not have sinned rests in the fact that he is not just truly man, but he is indeed truly God and cannot sin nor yield to temptation to sin then how can Jesus' temptation possibly be real? The answer to that question is not by His divine power, but by His human nature. He faced temptation to sin, and He relied on the power of the Father and the Holy Spirit to overcome it. In other words, Satan appealed to the human nature of Jesus to try to get Jesus to sin, but Jesus totally relied on the power of the Father, and the Holy Spirit had no desire to sin, and therefore he would not sin. The theologian Wayne Gruden puts it this way, the moral strength of his divine nature was there as a sort of backstop that would have prevented him from sinning, but he did not rely on the strength of his divine nature to make it easier for him to face temptations. Jesus' divine nature could not be tempted, but His human nature could be tempted. Now, I can't fully comprehend that. You're like, you just confused me. I think I confused myself. But But I accept what Scripture says. That Jesus was tempted and He never sinned. This means that He understands what we're going through and He's able to come to our aid when you and I are tempted. And so Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. He is our sinless high priest. Therefore, because he is these things, you and I must be a people of prayer. Look at verse 16. It's packed with all kinds of rich truths for us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We are called to approach God boldly in prayer, not because of who we are, but because of the kind of priest that Christ is. Throne of grace is an oxymoron to those who are reading this. You didn't just approach the throne in the ancient world. You didn't just come up there. It was a place of sovereign authority and judgment. If you approached the throne of the king and he didn't allow you to come, You are a goner. You for sure did not come near to the throne thinking that you were going to get some sort of sympathy from the king. However, the author of Hebrews calls it the throne of grace. He's making it clear that we are welcome to come to his throne. Do you remember Moses at Mount Sinai? God says to Moses, Moses, you and the elders come forward, but tell the people to keep away from the mountain because if they or an animal of theirs touches the mountain, he will be struck down. That's what God says in the Old Testament. If, if someone else or even an animal touches the mountain, they're going to die. Or how about the Ark of the Covenant? No one touches the Ark of the Covenant except the Levites who were specifically specified to carry the Ark. And they didn't even touch it. They used poles. And so they'd slide the poles into the Ark of the Covenant. covenant and if anyone touched it, they would die. Just ask you it, he found out. Remember the story? I mean, they're carrying the ark and it starts to fall. He reaches out and touches it to steady it. Bam. Struck down dead. Yet here, he says, we can draw near. How do we draw near? Through prayer. We talk directly to God the Father. And so we're going to answer four questions real quick this morning, that I believe this first answer is for us. Why pray? When to pray? How to pray? And what to expect when we do pray. So why pray? Well, we pray because we're weak. We don't pray to God because we have everything together and we know exactly what we are doing, where we're going in life, and know everything we need to know. Nor do we pray because we just need a little advice here and there on certain things. That might be how some of us pray. In fact, that's probably how many Christians pray. God, i got everything under control. Let me get a little advice from you. Or This is what I need. You know, we make our plans and then we say, God, help me. I really got myself in a mess. However, the real reason we should be praying is because you and I acknowledge that We're weak now. We don't want to hear that, right? We don't want to hear we're weak if you go up to a guy and be like, Hey, you're weak. That's them's fighting words, okay? They don't people don't want to hear that. What does Jesus say in John 15 5? Without me, you can accomplish a lot, but you need to get over. Get over this little hump so call me when you, when you need help that's what he says does he say hey you're, you're doing good give me a call when you need me to step in no what does he say without me you can do nothing that's what he says without me you can do nothing you can do nothing you know, funny thing about that word nothing in the Greek. You know what it means? Nothing. That's what it means. I tested that joke out on a buddy last night to make sure I'd get a laugh, but it means nothing. It's a quantity of no importance. Without Jesus, we can do nothing of any importance whatsoever. When we come to the throne of grace in prayer, he doesn't belittle us. He doesn't say, well, see, I told you so. I told you you could do nothing. So uh, we're not ridiculed. We're not made to feel foolish when we come to the throne of grace in prayer because we have a weakness. He knows we're weak. He welcomes us as a father welcomes his children and, and, and when they come to his to His side, and, and because they're weak, and, and the Father doesn't say, oh, get out of here, child. He helps them. When my son or my daughter says, Dad, I can't do this. I need help. I'm too weak. I don't just laugh it off and say, well, I told you so. Boy, you're sure, you are foolish. That's not what I do. I welcome them. I invite them to my side. I help them do it. Why pray? Because we're weak. We are weak. When... Do we pray? Why pray? Because we're weak. When do we pray? We need help always. We need help always. Every single one of us needs help at all times. We're not God. We have so many needs and limitations. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we are told, pray without ceasing. In Philippians 5.6, we are told, do not be anxious about anything but in." Everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18, we are told that praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer is our first response to every worry and every fear and every discouragement and anger we are to consciously and quickly turn every thought that comes into our mind into prayer a lack of prayer will cause us to depend on ourselves and think that we have it all together instead of depending on God's grace prayer should be as natural to you as a follower of Christ as breathing is you know why most Christians struggle with being a people of prayer You know why we struggle? You know why, if you're struggling in your prayer life right now, you know why you're struggling in your prayer life? Because we don't realize how needy we truly are. I mean, we live in America. We don't have needs. We have nice houses with nice yards, and two and a half kids, and a car, and a job, and food. We got this. The only time we need to call on the Lord is when things somehow spin out of control. We remember 9-11, right? Do you remember 9-10? Do you remember what happened on 9-10? Do you remember where you were? Or what you were doing? No, nobody does. Churches were not packed on 9-10. People were not praying on 9-10. We didn't need God on 9-10. Then 9-11 happened and churches are packed and suddenly it was okay to pray and involve God's name and vote God's name and say, God, we need your help. Suddenly it was all okay. Now guess what? We're right back to nine ten, Or worse, we depend on God for every single breath that we take. Every breath that you've taken since you've sat in this message is totally and utterly dependent on God. Every meal that you eat. The truth of the matter is that we are constantly and consistently in over our heads. All the time. At every point of our life we are in over our heads. Whether we recognize it or not. And our need is for God. And it's not a partial need. It is a total need. When do we pray? Always. Because we always need help. How should we pray? How should we pray? We pray directly to God with confidence in Jesus. Directly to God with confidence in Jesus. In this passage of scripture, who is the high priest? That's being spoken of. That is superior at all. It's Jesus. Then in verse 16, what does the author say? Let us draw near through our local priest by going to confession and confessing our sins to him. That's not what it says. It doesn't say that. It says, let us draw near. That's it. That word us means every believer. Our situation is absolutely hopeless. No human priest or or any powerless pope can do anything to rectify your situation. No one can help your situation but God. And God declares over it that Jesus became a high priest to shatter your hopelessness and to rescue us from our despair and the beauty of this is we don't have to go through some sort of human priest in order to draw near to the throne of God nor do we draw near based upon our own merit or our own righteousness we come with confidence to the throne because of the blood of Jesus Christ who is our high priest who has secured our access to the throne of God our confidence is not based in anything in us it's not based on how good we are or how well we pray. You know, sometimes we hear somebody pray and we're like, oh man, that person is a good prayer. It's not based on that. Your confidence to come to the throne of God right now if you want to, tomorrow, next week, ten years from now, your confidence to come boldly to the throne of God is based on the blood of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said that God overlooks our shortcomings and even our, I love Charles Spurgeon, and even our poor prayers, just like a loving parent overlooks the mistake in the sentence of their toddler. Even when we've sinned in a terrible way, if we call out to God and confess our sin, he cleanses us, he heals our wounds, just like a parent cleans up their child and bandages their wounds And takes care of them. That's what God does. How should we pray? We pray directly to God. With confidence in Jesus Christ. Knowing that it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ. That we have access to the throne. What should you expect? When we pray, what should we expect? Mercy and grace. What a promise that we find mercy and grace. Listen to what John Calvin said. The basis of this confidence is that the throne of God is not marked by a naked majesty which overpowers us, but is adorned with a new name, that of grace. This is the name that we ought always to keep in mind when we avoid the sight of God. The glory of God cannot but fill us with despair, such is the awfulness of His throne. Therefore, in order to help our lack of confidence and to free our minds of all fears, the Apostle clothes it with grace and gives it a name which will encourage us by its sweetness. It is as if we were saying, since God has fixed on His throne... A banner of grace and a fatherly love towards us. There is no reason why His majesty should ward us off from approaching Him. When we draw near in prayer, it's not for a scorning, for having a need. We're not told that our need does not matter. Or that it's not important. We don't hear that the high priest can't be troubled by our feeble little needs. Instead, we receive mercy. And we find grace to help us in our time of need. We receive mercy for our past failures. And grace to meet our present and future needs. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the help we need. And that's the beauty of grace. It's not deserved. Nor is it earned. It's simply received. And that's what we get. That word help is a picture of running or coming to the aid of someone who's crying for help. Church, when your life is falling apart and it seems like everything is out of control, then I implore you, cry out to your sympathetic high priest. who is at the throne of grace. And you will receive receive mercy and find the grace to help you in your time of need. Mercy is a focus on God's tenderness towards us because of our, our misery that's caused by our sin. And grace is a focus of his undeserved favor towards us. Everyone that trusts in the shed blood of Jesus for the payment of their sin has access to the throne of grace. Where they receive mercy and grace that's the whole point of the Old and New Testaments. God planned for a high priest, a Savior, a Redeemer, a Helper, that would show mercy and grace. You're not trapped in your sin. You, you, you need help. You don't deserve help, but you, you need it. You don't earn your help, but you need it. And you can have it, right now and forever. You just receive it, by trusting in Jesus. Son of God as your high priest. How do you how do you apply this? What do you do with this message? Church, Jesus is our high priest. Therefore, we should hold fast to our confession. Jesus is who he said he was, and because he is who he said he was, we must refuse to allow a confession of faith. To be robbed from us. We must make a public declaration. Of what we believe. And why we believe it. We wage war. Against anything that will rob us of our faith. So I ask you. Are you doing that this morning? Or are you just a fair weather Christian? You just kind of go with the flow. How public is your faith? Do people know what you believe? How public is your confession of faith? Or do you just kind of, eh, whatever? I'm just going to do what causes the least amount of waves, even if it means denying my faith. How do you apply this? You make your profession of faith public, you confess. Your faith that others know what you believe. Secondly, I like what John Piper said. He said this prayer is a wartime walkie talkie for spiritual warfare, not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of the saints. Are you a person of prayer? We don't pray to get more comfortable. We don't get on the intercom to summon our magic genie to get what we want. It's not about how comfortable we are. We pray to advance the kingdom of God. We pray to God that He will grant us the supplies that we need in order to advance His kingdom. We pray with confidence in Jesus because we are weak and always desperately in need of God's help. Listen, we are in spiritual war. We must hold fast to our confession and so we pray. We must persevere, and so we pray. Jesus is our high priest, and so we pray. We have needs, and so we pray. We want to receive mercy and grace, and so we pray. Church, I'm asking you to wage war against sin and Satan. I'm asking you that you would be a people of prayer. You and I are the church. And Scripture says the gates of hell will not Prevail. We take the fight to Him through prayer. And so we pray. So how is your prayer life this morning? In just a moment, we're going to sing a song before we get ready to have communion. I want to give you a chance to respond to this message. And if you feel like you need to respond this morning, whether it's to say, say, Pastor, I just I want you to pray with me that I would be a person of prayer. Maybe your prayer life's just non existent. maybe you, you need to pray and, and confess to the Lord this morning. You don't have to come up here to do it. You can do it right there in your pew. But maybe you need to just call out to God and say, God, my confession of faith isn't public. I'm not holding fast. So maybe you need to do that this morning. I want to give you that opportunity to respond. I'll be standing down front if you want somebody to pray with you.